Welcome to the Black Knight Nation podcast. I'm Sal Interdonado. The Black Knight Nation podcast is sponsored by Higher Echelon. Higher Echelon is a world-class consulting firm that trains employees in sports psychology secrets that drastically improve work performance. Founder Joe Ross is a retired Army who was an Army fullback and an Army assistant coach at West Point. And he puts that experience to use for his clients. Really appreciate Joe Ross sponsoring this podcast. And tonight we have a special guest. Uh, former Army football captain Pat Work joins us. Pat, thanks a lot for the time. Really appreciate you coming on. Sal, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, these podcasts that we have with former Army players, former Army podca- uh, captains, we usually go back and talk about the playing days, um, basically how you got to West Point, you know, how you were recruited and stuff like that. I find the recruiting stories pretty interesting, to be honest, you know, and uh, just wondering, like, to start our podcast, um, what really got you um, interested in West Point and how did you end up at West Point, first off, to start kind of your, you know, now where you are now? That's kind of the start of where you are now, so to speak. All right, Sal, thanks. Uh, well, it's good to be with you, all right? And anything I offer here is just my opinion. These are my observations. Certainly not the United States government, certainly not the Army. It's just mine. So, uh, you know, when I was 17 years old growing up in Central California, that year was 1991. And if you recall in 1991, that was the 100-hour war. That was the dominance. That was the military dominance on display in Iraq, right? That was Operation Desert Storm. So as a 17-year-old observing that, unfold literally over the course of a week, having no idea just how long it took for the buildup, having no real perspective, just seeing that uh, as a senior in high school, it's kind of a tipping point for me. I was kind of at that age where I was kind of like, you know, when you see military dominance on display and you're, you know, maybe I should be doing that. Maybe I should be participating in that and uh, kind of wanted an adventure. Didn't have a lot going for me in central California. It's a small little town I grew up in. So an opportunity to go to West Point, line up the education, line up, uh, you know, a job the day you graduate and get to play college football. It was kind of, uh, you know, I've, I've got a couple things right in my life, and that was one of them. I guess uh, surfing wasn't it for you, right, in California now? Uh, yeah, I gave it a shot once, Sal. I'm not that good at it, Sal. <laughs> I like to collide with people, not with water. It's not my thing. Gotcha, gotcha. So, I mean, you look at right now uh, – with army and and the California connections with army recruiting and to go cross country, right. To, to a military Academy. What was, was there a little transition for you at first or was it pretty smooth to, to make that transition to, you know, go across the country to a service Academy and get that, get that start freshman year. So I don't think anything's uh, smooth about entering the Academy for anybody. Really. It's a transition for anybody. And I was 17 years old at the time. And as I look back on it, I really do appreciate now just how vastly different the cadet from the East Coast, their experiences, vice those of us from the West Coast. I was very fortunate, uh, made a number of friends early on, had a couple families in particular that took me in and treated me like family. And that's one of the real powerful things, the generosity of all these families, particularly within the Army Football Network, in particular, George and, and Marianne McCovic, Mike McCovic's parents, extraordinary, really were like my, my home away from home. Every weekend we had off, we'd go there. And then, you know, I had a number of friends out on the East Coast. Um, that said, I, I'm a bit disappointed. I wish my parents could have seen me play football. I mean, you got to recall the 90s, right? It, it, it wasn't that long ago, but there was none of this. You know, you couldn't see every game. The rise of football on, co- you know, college football on television, it wasn't there. So, you know, my father missed a lot. He's a whole high school football coach. Um, and so I am, you know, in retrospect, 
it would have been great to have him be able to participate, have he and my mom be able to participate. But, um, yeah, so we went and blasted off and did that when we were 17, didn't look back. Yeah, I guess back then talking about playing in the 90s and not really the Army didn't have the national TV contract with CBS Sports Network. I guess those Army-Navy games were really the showcase for you, right? I mean, really where people could see those those uh, maybe those West Coast players for Army in, 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 the, in the spotlight there it was a game that was on its own. And, um, wow, I mean, you had some really fond memories of those games, I imagine. Yeah, and you got to recall, Sal, it was the showcase. It was kind of – there weren't the big conference championship games back then either in the early 90s. So, you know, you essentially had a standalone game. You had the Army-Navy game. It was immediately following Thanksgiving weekend. And, you know, there's 15 game seasons now. That wasn't the case back then. You know, you used to play 11 games and Army Navy was kind of its own thing, a national following and really a, a game with global reach. So, yeah, I, I watched it consistently as a high school student. But then to have the opportunity to go there and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, I, I met a lot of people who I keep in touch with today. My dearest friends went to the military academy with me. I've never had an easy job since I set foot in the academy in 1991. And I've always felt like my work in the Army has been impactful. So really an extraordinary opportunity. I feel very blessed. And, again, it's one of the few things I've gotten. And it's the first kind of big boy decision I made in my life, you know, that I'm going to leave California, go to New York, and set off on this adventure. And yeah. I've got a lot of support at home to do so, and it's great. Um. Can you put in perspective what it's like to play in an Army-Navy game, especially back then when it was kind of on its own stage? Yeah, I, I would tell you that, uh, you know, in that time frame, um, if you think of your conference games as an independent, you got your Air Force Academy game and you got your Naval Academy game. And there's a lot riding on it. And one thing that I think people underestimate about the Academy is the football co coaches are serious dudes. Uh, these guys are earning their living doing this. You know, while you get a ton of encouragement for encouragement's sake uh, within the core of cadets, I mean, the football coach, he these guys are really serious. Uh, for them, this is about winning and losing, and it really matters to them. You think of the guys we had back then, this was Bob Sutton, Perry Fuel, Mike Sullivan, John Bonamago, Andy Moeller, uh, certainly Bill Sheridan. All these guys are still running around the National Football League. I mean, these are very serious guys, extraordinary talent on that coaching staff. And to win at an academy, I, I, I tell people all the time, the varsity football at West Point, that's the path of most resistance. You know, and, and then to have it all kind of boiled down to this stage where you know that everybody's getting to watch you. All the folks that you grew up with are getting to watch you. That the guys on the other side, they got a lot riding on it too. And uh, for some people, this game's about camaraderie. Not really. I mean, for some of us, winning, winning those academy games, that was the conference game. And back then, Air Force Academy, that was kind of the Fisher to Berry era. I mean, those guys, yeah, they had a good thing going. Um, so, I don't know. I really appreciated the opportunities. I think at the time I understood what it was all about. I knew that it mattered to a lot of people. Um, I created a lot of memories. Most of my memories of the academy go back to Mikey Stadium and playing football. And certainly the Navy games, I recall those very fondly. So, uh, kind of a big deal in my life, Sal. Yeah, I mean, I guess we can get into the Army Navy uh, games in a second, but what do you think? Um, back in your in your playing career, is your is your fondest memory of playing at Mikey Stadium? Is there a game or a moment that you still remember to this day, pretty uh, pretty fondly? 
You know, you know what I remember about Mikey Stadium is the grind of practicing for four years, honestly. It's it's the the price you had to pay. I told you, I really think varsity football is the path of most resistance for a cadet. The price you had to pay and the people you paid it with. And I told you about these coaches. Much of what I've applied for 26 years, and I don't say this often, Sal, so I'm going to unveil something that I've kind of stuffed away for about 20 years. Uh, Mikey Stadium, to me, was the best school I've ever gone to in the Army. Okay, because at Mikey Stadium, you had to learn about fanaticism with your preparation. At Mikey Stadium, you had to learn about sudden change. We turn the ball over, make a play. At Mikey Stadium, you had to learn to deliver at the point of decision. At Mikey Stadium, you had to learn to do your 111, just do your job on the field. At Mikey Stadium, you had to play hurt. You had to learn how to suffer. Um, so much of what I've applied for 26 years as a professional soldier was learned at Mikey Stadium with those guys that I played with, with those coaches who taught me, you're either growing or dying, Pat. You never stay the same. And that's kind of a, so essentially part of my leadership style and part of my enthusiasm for staying in uniform. Um, so I feel really fortunate. And most of it goes back to the grind of practice. That's the hard part, Sal. No doubt. I was going to ask you later on about what you learned from Army football that you took into, you know, being an officer. Uh, we can maybe cover a little bit more of that later. But um, those those Army Navy games, right? Espe you know, I went back la last week when I was doing some research for this podcast, and there was a YouTube video of about nine minutes long of the 1993 Army Navy game. And Pat, my opinion, that Army game among amongst Vic you know Army Navy wins. Uh, Army victories over Navy in the in that service rivalry, right? I think that gets a little bit um, understated. A little that was a fantastic that was a fantastic college football game in 1993. Just watching the highlights of it, um, what do you what do you remember the most about that game? Because I know you were involved in a key a key tackle as a linebacker late in that game. What do you remember the most about that game? So I recall my senior year. Our starting quarterback was a guy named Rick Roper. And Roper was awesome in that 93 Army-Navy game. Now, Roper tore his ACL in the first half of our first game our senior year. And, you know, you just don't have the depth at the academies. If your quarterback goes down, it gets really hard, right? But Roper at that point had started, I don't know, probably 20 games or so. And he was so good. I mean, this guy was like – he was he he was like the – the conductor of the orchestra running the triple option. And this is true wishbone football, just pounding Navy. There's no secrets. We're lining up, tighten your chin strap, and we're just going to pound you. And we dominated the first half, and the offense just ground these guys up. I remember Roper just being so extraordinary during that game. Uh, I remember distinctly, I remember Jim Cantaloupe blowing up a Navy running back and forcing a fumble. Uh, I remember it. Uh, vividly. I remember Bob Heckethorne, one of our outside linebackers, making a great – I mean, because these are kind of bird's eye view. I don't remember much, but I remember a handful of things from that game. Yeah. And I remember uh, this sort of Navy comeback in the second half and by the fourth quarter, this tension building. And, uh, you know, very fortunate to be a part of that team. We were very fortunate to win the game. But th that's kind of a handful of things that I remember. And, you know, th th this is when – Sal, when you talk about the best schools I've ever been to, and I talk about playing varsity football at the academy, you know, when it's you against someone else, do your 111, and somebody's going to win and someone's going to lose, and you're going to do this 65 times over and over and over, and at the end of the game, there's a final score. 
And the final score is proof. And that's the payoff for all the preparation. That's the payoff for hanging in there. That's the payoff for recovering uh, and reloading when things don't go right. And uh, to win the football game, pretty big deal. Now, and I remember the missed field goal, obviously. Okay, I remember that well. You'll remember your tackle on the third down that set up that missed field goal? or Well, neither would anybody if the guy hadn't missed the field goal, right? <laughs> I mean, if the guy hadn't missed the field goal, no one would remember the play, right? It was just, you know, it's just a – so, you know, I'm pretty humble about it. Now, I do recall this. Uh, this is something I recall. And uh, I've only told this story a couple times. But, you know, I was an inside linebacker. And in the, the call in the huddle was literally to move the, outs, the inside backer out to the right edge of the defense. So we essentially, when Navy's got a 230-pound running back that they keep running, uh, and it was about on the one-yard line, on third down we took one of the inside linebackers, and that was my game playing downhill in the line of scrimmage stuff in the run. We moved me outside, and I recall in the huddle saying, whoa, this is just not a good place to be. But I was unblocked, was able to come off the edge, did get lucky, did trip the guy. And if you watch the play, you'll notice that Jim Slomka, number 72, one of our defensive tackles, Connor's dad. All yeah. the Army football fans know Connor. Yeah, yeah, Connor's dad could play ball too. Jim Slomka really stuffed. I mean, he had stoned the offensive guard that was trying. And so as Stramanak is falling, he falls into the back of the legs of his offensive guard. And it's Slomka that had stoned the guy and held him there. So it really was a team effort. The coaches got the play call right. I got lucky made the play I was supposed to play. And that's the point of football, right? Do your 111. At the point of decision, they put us in the right defense. Are you going to make the plays or not? And I would tell you ground combat's a heck of a lot like that too. You know, can you get to a position of advantage and dominate in war? Uh, you know, a lot of it translates. Absolutely. I mean – that defense that you had in 93, I mean, like you said, with Jim Slomka yourself, I mean, there were some guys, uh, uh, Cantaloupe, you yeah. know, and you mentioned a couple other guys. You guys uh, really, I mean, could I mean, you look at a, even the Army, Army-Navy game, right? I mean, I thought, if I can recall the first half, you were, you really had, st- you had really slowed down Navy's attack, right, in that game? Yeah, I think, uh, I think we had shut them out in the first half, but yeah. that's when we played four quarters, though, so. Yeah. Uh, Again, I don't remember much. I remember these little bits. Roper was awesome. I remember a play Hecathorn made here. I remember something that Cantaloupe did. I remember the tension building at the end. I remember scratching my head when this defense was called. I remember the missed field goal. You know, and I remember, you know, the experience, right? But so much becomes more vivid after the fact. You know, I don't remember a lot about football other than the grind of playing up at the, you know, playing up at the stadium and just practice, you know, going to practice five days a week. That 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 moment, that tackle and that missed field goal should certainly go down in the Army Navy rivalry as one of the you know top top plays. And um you look at now you see um last year's Army defense, right? I mean they led the nation in yards allowed per game. Um I mean what what as as an ex as an ex football player, ex linebacker, did, did you get to see enough of them to to uh just give a little observation of uh, how how maybe good they were or, or how they played? So in the big picture, I think what Coach Monken's done to change expectations of the program, not just any specific team, but this persistent pattern where the expectation of winning is back, it's extraordinary. And it ain't easy at an academy. It ain't easy to win games. That is for certain. I told you it's a path of most resistance. It's really, really hard uh, for professional coaches to take young men and get them to prepare with the sort of fanaticism it takes 
to go compete like that and still do everything they need to do to tend to their business with the core cadets and be good cadets and prepare to be lieutenants. So what Monken's done to restore the stature of the program, what Monken's done to, to, you know, put pressure on the big guys to take OU down to the wire, to take Michigan down to the wire and to know that he ain't satisfied keeping it close, that he's still losing sleep because it was there for them to take. Okay. That's what I appreciate that guy. I, I appreciate that about him is that his, his singular tunnel vision on winning football games, it makes a big difference. And we're winning Academy games now consistently. If those are your conference games, you know, he's changed the calculus, right? I think they have something to be worried about because they're coming into Mikey stadium again. So, you know, I, I congratulate all these guys. And uh, this year to win the commander in chief's trophy again, I mean, good on these guys. But you know what? The one thing I think about what Monken's done again is, you know, it doesn't matter what you did in the past. It's the headlights again, right? You're only as good as your next season. Yeah. And it's that hunger that they have where they're never content or satisfied and they want more and they just keep competing more. You know, it's really exciting to watch. And I'm really proud of what the Academy's doing with its football program. Yeah, I mean, three out of the last four years, they won the Commander-in-Chief's right. trophy. That's not that's really something. Yeah, you know, um, and just um, the fact that that's, as a former player, that's, gotta, that's very prideful when you see them beat Navy and Air Force in back-to-back weeks, something that's never happened before, right? I mean, that's got to bring out, I mean, a lot of uh, just just pride of, of what, what the program, no doubt, right? Right, so I was able to go to the Air Force game and nice. uh, consider how that one finished. You know, to, to make the goal lines. I mean, that's extraordinary. Back-to-back weeks with it all on the line, they delivered. You know, and, and that's what, I mean, what more can you ask? With it all on the line, they made the plays they had to make. They beat them at the point of decision. And uh, that's a big deal. And, and, you know, that's real leadership. That's you and me, back-to-back in the bar. It's all on the line right now, okay? You and me. Right now, we're going to win this football game. All the sweat, all the pain, everything we did to get to this point. We're going to make the play, and they did it. And uh, But, you know, once again, you're only as good as your next season. So yeah. I know these guys uh, don't spend a lot of time playing. But, yeah, I mean, what, how exciting is it to watch and to be a part of and to be so proud of what they're doing again, right? The expectations, and they've embraced them. It's a big deal. I'm really proud of them, and it's really, uh, it's really fun to watch. You sound like a football coach a little bit, Pat. Well, you know, I mean, I got a little bit of that in me, right? You know, I told you, these guys that I, you know, these guys that we played for back in the 90s, these are serious dudes. Bill Sheridan. Bill Sheridan, who's been running around the NFL for the last two decades. You want to learn about leadership? You want to learn about exacting preparation? You want to learn? There's no way they'll be more prepared than me. You might be smarter than me. You might be faster than me. You might be stronger than me. You might be more athletic than me. You might have bigger guns than me. You're never going to out-prepare me. That's Bill Sheridan. And Bob Sutton, you know, his kind of mantra, his ethos, if I could summarize it to this day, Sutton is so singularly focused on preparation. He doesn't even call it practice. He says every spectacular achievement is preceded by unspectacular preparation. That's Bob Sutton. You know, so it was, you know, they taught me a heck of a lot. And if any of these soldiers that I've served with in the army over the last 26 years are listening to any of this, you know, they recognize where it comes from. And my own father was a high school football coach. You know, he's an offensive line coach. I mean, those guys are the most neurotic of all of them. You know, and it takes one to know one, right? I mean, this is every single step, every hand placement, 
everything you can do to get an advantage. I mean, these guys are seeking every single advantage. So, uh, you know, yeah, I got a lot of that in me for sure. Back at, when you played, was there the opportunity to be a graduate assistant after you after you graduated West Point, or were those opportunities around or now? There was. I just, you know, it wasn't for me, Sal. Okay. Um, if I couldn't play football, now there was a time where I thought my calling might be to, you know, to be a football coach. But this is, uh, you know, how many different versions of you have you been, at, you know, at our age? Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, at 47 years, there's been many versions of me. At one point, there's this kind of guy who is completely tunnel vision on doing the best he could to be a good cadet and a good college football player. Then I turn all that energy on trying to be the lieutenant that soldiers deserve. And then I was thinking, well, you know, I'm at this crossroads, right? I'm 26. If I want to jump out into the coaching profession, now's the time to do it. And I met my wife at that time, and I worked for an extraordinary officer, a guy named uh, Dan Allen, who went on to be the vice chief of staff of the Army. And these two intersecting influences, my girlfriend at the time, Mara, and then Lieutenant Colonel Dan Allen and his wife, Debbie. And I saw them, and I said, look at the enthusiasm with which they stay in uniform. They're 40 years old, and look at all their energy. It's intoxicating. Look at that. And meanwhile, I was dating Mara, who said, let's keep doing this. This is awesome. And, uh, you know, so I've never looked back. But at 26 years old, like like all these lieutenants, you know, I had a choice to make. And I thought coaching might be the way that I was supposed to go. But, you know, fortunately, we got that right, too. So, you know, I told you I got it right going to the academy. I obviously got it right marrying Mara. We just celebrated our 21st anniversary. And then I think continuing to serve. You know, that's, that's been an extraordinary blessing in my life as well. We, we have to give uh, more credit for her tech skills too, right? Getting us going tonight on this podcast too. So we can't, we got to give her credit for that too. So yeah, I give her a lot of credit for a lot of things, Sal. Appreciate it. <laughs> can you, can you talk about kind of the, the, um, I guess the steps, like you say at 26, you, do you, do you stay in the army or do you, do you, uh, after five years of service, do you, do you leave and, and go to civilian life? Uh, can you talk about the steps after that and how you it seems seems like you continue to take those steps up? And now you are a brigadier general in the army, and uh, how that's it seems like it's worked out pretty well for you. That's yeah, I've been extraordinarily blessed. And uh, if you find your life's work when you're 21 years old, I mean, what's better than that, right? So I think realistically, for all your viewers, um, if you can think of free men and women who have a lot of options. I mean, that's your lieutenant. These are very talented people who have a tremendous amount of potential. And, you know, I think you can approach an Army profession in five-year chunks, okay? So the first five years are kind of mapped out for you. You're sort of the street-level leader. You're the lieutenant. And the term lieutenant, you know, in lieu of what? In lieu of the commander. The commanders can't be everywhere, so you have lieutenants. The lieutenants are responsible for completing the mission of the day. They're responsible for setting the example. And they're generally there to use their minds to solve problems. So that's your lieutenant. You know, that's Connor Slomka today going through the Fort Benning pipeline to become the lieutenant some soldiers deserve, right? And so you do that. And at the end of about five years, they make you a captain. The captain's a powerful, uh, it's a powerful rank in our army because it's the first one that you can command soldiers at. And when we talk about command in our army, it's this extraordinary privilege but it's also a massive responsibility. I mean, the regulation itself literally says the commander is responsible for everything that happens and fails to happen. That's a pretty heady responsibility that not only what you commit, but what you omit. 
and you got 120 people or so who all come from somewhere believing in something, right? And you're not leading yourself, but you're supposed to prepare them for ground combat for the hardest days of their lives. Okay, so that's a tremendous challenge for young people. And then that kind of gets you through the next five years, being a captain. Then you become a major. And that five-year journey, you've kind of bumped up to the entrepreneurial level of leadership in our Army. The different, we call it the field grade level. You're no longer at the company level. You're at the field grade. You're supposed to be able to see the field. It's a broader perspective where you're really responsible because nothing new under the sun happens in our Army. We do the same things over and over and over just in different intervals. The majors kind of run all those systems and processes for the recurring events. And the best ones never forget that they're there trying to fight for, compete for these young people. Set an example. Because all of the lieutenants, the new guys, the lieutenants want to be captains. Do they want to be majors? Is something about watching you after 10 years when you've got a minivan and a young family, is something about the work you're doing doesn't appeal to them? And the majors have to compete. They have a tremendous influence on whether or not the lieutenants stay. Then your next five-year plan, if you're, you know, that's the first kind of cut going from major to lieutenant colonel at about the 14-year mark. And so that five years of lieutenant colonel, that's another opportunity to command in our Army. That's the battalion level. That's essentially 6X, six companies. And at the battalion level, um, you know, that's like Leonidas in the phalanx. That's how I describe it. The battalion commander's been in the Army for anywhere for 16 to 20 years. It's you and me, front row of the phalanx, draw your sword, draw your shield. Let's slash and stab our way through this together. That's the battalion commander. You're always teaching. You're always leading. You're always present. It's about the warrior ethos, and it's about preparing them for ground combat. And it is an awesome job, perhaps the most enjoyable job. It's the last echelon I've experienced where they recognize your, your voice in the dark. Okay, when they hear you coming from 30 feet away, they're like, here he comes. Here she comes. The battalion commander. It's awesome. After that, you know, maybe you get another five-year plan. That's kind of like when you start to approach the 20-year mark. And then maybe you get another five-year plan. Maybe the Army lets you keep serving in this pyramid. It gets increasingly competitive the further you move up, right? And then you become a colonel and you command a brigade. And a brigade combat team is an extraordinarily diverse organization. I was fortunate enough to command in the 82nd Airborne Division. And, uh, you know, 4,300 free men and women who want to paratroop with you. It's awesome. 1,900 of them are married. 90 different military specialties. It's extraordinary. But it's a massive responsibility. And, uh, you know, and then if you're really blessed, you thread the needle and you get to be a brigadier general. But I've always approached this as do the best I can where my feet are. Okay, you'll never be good enough. You got a lot of people counting on you, both the people you work for and the people who work for you. You got to deliver for them every day. And if the Army gives you another five year plan, you kind of know the triggers and then you make your choices. Okay, so I've never gotten too far over my skis on this. We just try to do the best we can today um, and, uh, and know that there's a lot of people who deserve really good leadership. I hope yeah. that makes sense, Sal. That was that was great stuff right there. Yeah, really that's an Army 101 right there for a guy that's been doing this for 26 years. That's one path. Yeah, it, it, that was. I, I wanted to talk about the 82nd Airborne, but first, if you have any comments or questions for Pat or I, please feel free to send them our way. Um, the 82nd Airborne is pretty interesting. Like you say, you were able to give us some statistics of who 
the 82nd Airborne represented when you were in command. And that that's that, that's something that really goes back to a lot of people, um, that unit. And especially, you know, also it was honored in the Army-Navy game a few years back. So, I mean, it's definitely one of the more historic um, units to, to lead. And that, that must, like you said, that's, that must have been just in a, yeah, there's a lot of responsibility, but I'm sure there's a lot of pride too when you're, when you're leading a group like that, right? So I can't help but smile when I talk about it or think about it. So, Sal, here's what I would tell you. Command's a thing, not a place. And anytime you get to command anybody in our Army, it's an extraordinary privilege and responsibility, right? So I've been blessed. I've gotten to do it a couple times. And, uh, you know, I kind of jumped out of bed every day that I got to do it. And I got to do it in combat as a captain. I got to do it in combat as a lieutenant colonel. I got to do it in combat as a colonel. So I've been very, very fortunate. And I've been blessed to serve with some extraordinary people. And, you know, when it comes to the, the 82nd Airborne Division in particular, now, so, you know, there's a little bit of tribalism in the Army, right? It's competitive. You know, everybody's kind of, and you love the one you're with. No matter who you're with, it's the only one that really matters at the time, right? So most people should identify with their platoon, their squad, the smallest unit first. More so than a soldier, a lot of paratroopers in 82nd, they're fiercely proud to be paratroopers. And here's the secret sauce now. They jump out of planes, okay? There's something about free men and women voluntarily jumping out of planes. It's a big deal. It boils down to this. They have no idea who packed their parachute. They have no idea who's flying the plane. They have no idea who inspects them when they put the parachute on. They've got no idea who's in charge of putting them out the door. They have total trust that when they get on the drop zone, when they finally hit the ground, many of them hurting when they hit the ground, that they're going to find somebody else who's going north in the middle of the night and they're going to take care of each other. That's the secret sauce of paratrooping right there. It's awesome. And I respect them for it because they're all afraid to do it, but they do it anyway. And I've been blessed. I got to do it for a long time. And anybody who's ever jumped out of planes like this, served with paratroopers, served with rangers, I think you understand. And there's so many different analogs to soldiering. Pilots risking it every day with their crews, right? Uh, I mean, if you think of what pilots do, they literally defy physics. If you think of what a small crew in a tank does, if you think of what teams that are driving fuel down the road at night with no lights on, it's extraordinary, these shared hardships and risks that are really like the glue that makes us, you know, really makes us cohesive and allows us to win in combat. Yeah. I mean, just, just uh, that, that fires you up when you hear, when you hear you explain that and, and just the stories behind what, what the paratroopers do. And, um, Wow, I was going to ask you a little bit about, but you kind of you kind of covered a lot of this. I mean, if if there's anything that you take from your Army football days into, was there anything that you took into like leading troops um, in your from your Army football days? It seemed like there's a lot that you took from your Army football days that you used when you were able to utilize when leading troops, right? Yeah, of course, Sal. Because I mean, ultimately. Um, it really is a great analog. Now, I would tell you leading soldiers is like 10x. I mean, it's incomparable, the privilege of being, you know, a company commander in our Army vice being able to play in a football game. I mean, it's incomparable uh, because the stakes are so much higher and the dependencies are so much deeper, right? And the opposite of fear is really loving the people, right? In a very sincere way, the Spartans called it philos, loving them. 
Um, but in football, if you consider your responsibility to the team, do your 111. There's 11 players on the field, do your job. That's not different than fighting as a small unit. If you think of preparation, when the bullets start flying, there's no time to prepare anymore. You're either ready or you're not. Your ability to make adjustments. Think of a fumble. Think of a fumble, the disappointment, the sudden change. The, the kind of exasperation, the rolling your eyes, the deflation that comes with a fumble in a football game, particularly when it really hurts. And then consider what it's like in combat where it's the ultimate sudden change, where you get ambushed periodically, where he gets the drop on you once in a while. Your ability to relax, reload, reset yourself, reorient on the problem, and get back to work. Um, your ability to prepare with an intensity to get yourself out and just to know your job. Most of the time we spend on a football team is preparing for the 60 minutes of playing. It's not different with war fighting. You know, you commit much of your adult life, you invest your precious days on God's earth to get ready for war, to spend a little bit of time fighting. it. It's not different. The teamwork, the idea that everybody is valued. It doesn't matter if you're a freshman. It doesn't matter if you're the kicker. You better make your kicks. You all matter. We have no extra players. We have no extra soldiers. Everything you do matters here. And then my final thing I'd offer you is that this kind of ethos where you just never accept, I'm growing or dying, we'll never be good enough. It never stays the same. Um, we got to get better. we got to keep improving. Um, it's, it's not different in that sense. Now, obviously, the stakes are much higher, much more gravity, but uh, – and, and really, you're – you got people who are really counting on you. They're trusting their precious lives to you when you're responsible for soldiers. Um, so it's an extraordinary privilege either way, though. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just uh, talk to us a little bit about what you're up to now in your military career and the, the, the continued climb, so to speak. So I've been blessed. I'll, uh, I left the 82nd Airborne Division as the Deputy Commanding General of the Division. We had an extraordinary experience there. Um, I left there about a month ago and I worked for some dynamite leaves. See, I've been blessed too because I've worked for so many talented people who were better than me that I could always learn from. And I once said that my, I once told my wife, Hey, you know, I mean, the only hobby I really have is reading. And she said, no, 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 your hobby is learning. And I learned a heck of a lot in my last experience at the 82nd Airborne Division. You know, they put these one-star generals in these jobs as deputy commanding generals so that you can learn how to command at that level. So you can see every corner of it so that you can learn how to develop people at that level, how to keep it organized at that level, how to communicate with clarity at that level, how to solve problems at that level. So I did that for the last year down at Fort Bragg and a month ago, moved back into the Pentagon where I'm back on the Army staff here at headquarters department of the Army. I work in the G3. That's the operations directorate. OK, and I have an extraordinarily uh I think I'll describe it as this interesting job. No two days are the same. Um, I'm essentially uh, the chief of staff of the army and the secretary of the army's current ops guy. We have a team down there that keeps track of, you know, what's happening in multiple time horizons. One of those time horizons is the next like three days. So it's volatile. It requires a lot of flexibility. You got to have a lot of mental acuity. So it's, it's, it's really good and it's, it's challenging every day and I got a heck of a lot to learn. And then we've got another parts of the team that are looking deep out a year or beyond. So the complexity of the job, uh, the different time horizons that we have to think over, the sorts of problems we're asked to solve, 
um, the very senior leadership of the Army that's dependent on us, and then the whole Army very indirectly on many of the things we do. So anyway, they're in the, the at the Army staff, a lot of people work really hard in anonymity, and, and we're some of those guys. No doubt. Um, just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Army Football Brotherhood. You mentioned, like, the close – that you uh, relationship that you had with your former teammates that you still have today. And just wondering when you're out in command and you're leading uh, soldiers, it, it, uh, there's got to be some interaction with, you know, uh, maybe some army football players that are just have graduated or have recently graduated from West Point and maybe what those experiences might, might be like. Yeah. So let me give you two examples here. Um, when I was a captain, hit rewind to 2000, I was the captain of 94 team. Kevin Zarnecki was the captain of the 93 team. He was the other linebacker on the inside. Mm -hmm. And then Joe Sacitano was the captain of the 96 team. All three of us served in the same infantry battalion out of Fort Lewis. So as the captain of the 94 team, an infantry company commander, Joe Sacitano, Lieutenant Joe Sacitano, Captain of the 96 team was my executive officer. He was my second in command, my immediate subordinate. And our battalion fire support officer, the guy responsible for all the artillery, all the jets and bombers, the integration, synchronization of all that, was Kevin Zarnecki. It was awesome. Three Army football captains in the same battalion at the same time. I also, when I was a lieutenant, served a third ranger battalion with one of my best friends and teammates, a guy named Eric Oliver, who's now an ear, nose, and throat doctor, extraordinarily talented guy. One of the most talented cadets that I could ever be. And then he was a tremendous officer, chose off, chose to go off and become a medical doctor, obviously made the right decision. As far as this younger generation, um, so I have taken, like, for example, today, I got a couple text messages from Connor Slomka today. Many of your followers know Adisa King. Adisa sure. and his brother Achille might have been the most talented football player to ever play at West Point. Achille was a running back back when we played. Um Adisa was my operations officer. When I was a lieutenant colonel, he was the major underneath me that kind of ran the battalion of 750 soldiers. So Adisa was kind of my right-hand man. Um, when you think of uh, uh, Achille, he and I served together in 2nd Ranger Battalion when Achille was uh, an enlisted guy. Um, I got a text message today from uh, Joe Ross, I got a text message today from Ed Dresch, who I played with. My best friend from the academy, John Stoll, was an Army football player. Mm. So, I mean, it's it's very real. And, you know, for any Army football player that's out there watching right now, if you're still in uniform and I can ever help you, just reach out, please. Because the number one job of a leader is to help make leaders, right? And if I can help you in any way, just reach out. You know, I, I mean, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to help you. And I think there's a lot of us who would, right? Yesterday, in, in fact, yesterday I had a deep conversation with someone about Mike McElrath, who's mm -hmm. one of the best football players that I've yeah. ever seen come through the academy. And uh, somebody was McElrath's roommate in college that I bumped into in the Pentagon. So it's a very small world, even when it's not football season, Sal. It's amazing because that's what um, basically in Jeff Munkin's uh, run here, that's what's really been preached a lot is that culture and that brotherhood. And it's always been there at West Point, right? It's always been there like during your playing days too. But to see, to hear those stories and to see those interactions when you do graduate from West Point, because, you know, depending on what you branch and depending on what uh, where you station, you know, it just kind of 
it kind of seems like it's kind of happens that way when you were, were stationed with those two other army football captains, right? I mean, it's just just incredible stuff, really, to be honest with you. To see that you guys were able to work together after West Point. So, well, Sal, here's one for you, okay? And this is just kind of a real simple, I think, uh, maxim, right? Teams aren't made up of people; they are people, right? And people depend on people on that team. So, you know, the army's not made up of people either. It is people. Right. And it's people who lead people. It's people who do all the hard work. It's people who do the deadly work. It's people who suffer for a common cause. And so I think going through the crucible, I told you, I don't remember much, excuse me, I don't remember much about the games at West Point, but I remember practice, the grind, you know, and it's the guys that you grind with. I mean, how can you not become friends with these? Listen, Sal, if a friend is someone you can always count on, who do you think we were counting on? Right. Yeah. And so, these, these sort of things that happen in these formative years when you're 21 years old and it's third and one and Slomka stones the guy, the coach made the right call after all, and you trip a guy, and then the guy misses a field goal, you win a game, and the difference between us being miserable forever or not is that he misses a field goal. That's what you go through together. No doubt. I mean, it's, it's just – uh, having a lot, I really appreciate you ha having you on tonight, Pat, because it definitely you get the perspective of, of life after West Point. Yes, being a football player at West Point and, and being a cadet, but also life after that. And wow, so far you've had a really decorated career so far. And uh, just like you said, sharing those, um, the perspective and also the relationships that you were able to maintain after West Point. I think that's what it's really all about. I think, really, right? I mean, that's what that's how that's what I get uh, from these podcasts, talking to the, the guys who have stayed in the army and are now, you know, rising up in the ranks to to the to uh, to to as high as general. I mean, that's what it's all about. Well, I, I appreciate spending some time with you, Sal, because uh, you know, as I was thinking about um, you know having the discussion with you, you know, there's an opportunity in this that we we don't always get to remember who you are and who you are. Right. Mm -hmm. There's how many different versions have I been of myself? Well, at one point I was a cadet who was trying to make it in the classroom, trying to be a pretty good citizen at the academy, trying to be as good a football player as I could be. Right. And there's a lot of folks that can relate to that. And, uh, you know, who you are and whose you are, this responsibility we have to bring some of that honor back on the program, right. To, to, represent the army well um it's a it's a real responsibility as much as it is a privilege so spending some time with you and spending some time with everybody really blessed to do this thanks for uh giving me an opportunity to talk to you tonight absolutely we could probably talk forever here tonight really appreciate it um it guys if you're watching right now you could follow us um this podcast will appear on all the major platforms uh apple spotify amazon you could you could uh, listen to we've had um uh we had uh, uh general sims on here too um leader of the first infantry division we've had on here and we look to get more um officers like pat on here in the future and you can also uh follow us on youtube we have a youtube channel black knight nation and uh please uh log on to black knight nation and follow our stories on the army athletics uh, currently the baseball team today pat won the patriot league championship is heading to the NCAA tournament for the third time, third year in a third time in a row. Uh, so that was a major accomplishment for on the athletic side today for Army. Uh, really appreciate it.
your uh, time, Pat, and uh, hope to look uh, maybe do this again uh, in, the, in the future. Sal, thanks for having me. It's really good to be with you. And, uh, you know, as always, beat Air Force, beat Navy. Thanks for having me, Sal.